when a guard would stop and talk to you, you used to stand back and you would yell so people could hear what you were saying to that guard as they walked by or, or within the vicinity. But he knew what a convict was going to do before they thought of it themselves. He'd just been around that long and uh, he was tough. They'd find uh, Sparky in about every conceivable place you could imagine, which we would, of course, dump. They'd wait until everybody was locked up and he would open his door, run down to cell one and get a bugler can full of Sparky and take it back to his cells. She had a kind of a hypnotic power. There were a great many wild cats around the penitentiary, and most people couldn't get near them. But she would stand in the doorway of the cell house and say, Kitty, 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 and those cats would go to her. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Stool Pigeon Saturday. Uh, this is Anthony, and I'm excited to have a special guest the author of Diamond Field, Finding the Real Jack Davis, Max Black, is here in the trenches with me to talk about Diamond Field Jack. So welcome, Jack. Uh, Max. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I almost feel like you. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing as you research some of these prisoners, how much detail you can learn about somebody's life from their intake files and letters to and from family members. and It, it has been amazing to me yeah. the amount of information that I have been able to gather. I have gathered over 300 newspaper articles yeah. from around the United States yeah. about this man. It's amazing. And as far as reaching as like New York, this yeah. story was all across the country. It's a... Oh, it's incredible. And and the, the love of, like, Western lore. I mean, it's such a good story of cowmen and shepherds and everything else. So I think just to begin, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Were you born and raised here in Idaho? No, I was born and raised in Delta, Utah, okay. which is uh, in the western part of Utah near Ely, Nevada. I mean, a little bit uh, east of, of Ely, Nevada. And... Uh, and then I went to University of Utah. After I graduated, I worked in Salt Lake for six, seven years, and then was transferred to Boise, and that was in 1968. I worked with insurance companies here in, uh, in Western Idaho. I uh, traveled around Western Idaho every two weeks. I'd go to Twin Falls early, uh, up at McCall and up in that area and Caldwell. And and so I had this somewhat regular route that I'd take every other week. Uh-huh. And how I ran across Diamond Field Jack is that one time I received an inquest or a request from an agent in California that had uh, needed to buy insurance for a group of college professors that had come up to Albion, Idaho, and leased the old Albion State College. And so I uh, went down there to make a fire inspection and a liability inspection. And as you drive into Albion, and it's there today, there is a, a placard there on the city square about Diamond Field Jack. And I stopped and read it, and it was kind of interesting. As I read it, and as I look back on it, there was something that struck me 
about the article and about the name and, and whatever else. And, and uh, as time has gone on, I have kind of figured out why that familiarity may have existed. I uh, became curious. It talked about these two sheep herders that were found dead in the uh, uh, wagon, about uh, this Diamond Field Jack, Jack Davis was his name, and uh, how he had been tried and convicted of uh, killing these two young men. Mm-hmm. Well, as I traveled again back and forth down through Twin Falls, and I started to run across his name again and again. Uh-huh. There's a bar in uh, Twin Falls, Jack Davis Bar, and and up at uh, the ski resort, there's a Jack Davis Park, and so. The curiosity was aroused, and I have been all of my life a Civil War nut. Mm-hmm. I have made oh, 15 or more trips back to uh, the Civil War yeah. country, and uh, my interest, for whatever reason, is that when I read an article or some information about the Civil War, I wanted to know where that happened. Yeah. I wanted to be able to go back and stand on the spot where it happened and find it. This curiosity about uh, these two sheep herders, I wanted to know where did that happen. Yeah. And so inquiring from people in Twin Falls, Burley, Rupert, uh, or all of that area, everybody had a little different idea of where it happened and uh, none of it matched and so over the years my curiosity just kind of remained there and uh, one session at the legislature and just so you listeners know max black served as the member of the idaho house of representatives from district 15 which was the area in boise south of shinden roughly between eagle road and maple grove up to i-84 He served as a representative from December 1st, 1992 through December 1st, 2012. In the legislature, towards the end of the session, you'll find periods of time where you may wait for a whole half a day Mm -hmm. before something else happens. You have to be there or available. But uh, this one year, we were having these long delays, and I, uh, just out of curiosity, I says, I'm going to go over to the city library and see if I can find anything on Diamond Field Jack, <laughs> which I did. And when I got over there, the only thing they had was what they referred to as a drop file. Okay. And there was some newspaper articles and, and some other information, but it wasn't very uh, enlightening or very detailed. And so... I accumulated that, and I had, on several occasions, gone to Burley and to Albion mm-hmm. trying to find the original court records, right? which oh. should still exist. Yeah, Albion was the county seat at the time, but it had been transferred to Burley being the county seat, and uh, all of the papers transferred to, uh, to Oakley. I'd get up to Oakley, and they uh, they were never able to find any detail about the trial. Right. 
And uh, they also just had a drop file. And there would be some newspaper articles. I got to know the county clerk down there real well. And between the two of us, we did quite a bit of searching. But we're never able to find anything. And, and he started to think that the information probably had been transported to the state capital mm -hmm. historical society. Yeah. So I came up here and started to search. And uh, Rod House at the time was the curator. Mm -hmm. And he and I, on a number of occasions, would go out into the archives and he did all kinds of research. And we never could find any substantial information mm -hmm. on Diamond Field Jack. And this one day, I was out there talking to Rod, and we had gone out into the archives records and came back and were standing there in the hallway. And a young girl came walking up to us, and she had known me as a page mm. at, in the legislature. She says, Representative Black, what are you doing out here? And we told her what we were doing. And, and Rod mentioned that uh, we've been out looking for records on Diamond Field Jack, but w just doesn't seem to be any. And she said, oh, yeah, there's a lot. And he says, what do you mean? He says, oh. And so she turned around and walked back into the archives and, and walked right to a, a orange crate full of records on Just the Diamond trope. Field Jack. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And uh, we, of course, retrieved them. And so they set up a special room <laughs> there in the uh, Historical Society. And this was going to take substantial time to go through all these records. And, and so they were kind enough to set them aside and not put them away every time I yeah. came out because I couldn't go out and spend lots of time. We were st partly still in the legislature at this particular time. Mm -hmm. And so I'd go out and spend an hour or two hours or whatever and, and copying. I copied, which they allowed me to do, and I paid for e each copy. And, and so I accumulated basically all that they had. Yeah. Yeah. which I've got them all at my house. I've got over uh, 24 three-ring binders full oh of information on Diamond oh Field Jack gosh. that I've accumulated going to uh, Diamond Field, uh, Tonopah, Nevada, yeah. in their museums, mm -hmm. and they are kind, repeat, or, uh, reproduce everything for me. Yeah. So I've got an archive at my house on Diamond Field Jack. And when did you start this, like collecting all this? Well, it would have been probably in about 2006 or seven. Okay, yeah. I finally started to accumulate it and organize it. And I first had never really thought about writing a book, mm -hmm. but the more information I got and more detailed information I got, it became the idea to put it into a, a story form. And, yeah. and so I started to do that in 2009. And uh, I worked on it off and on, and I finally published it in 2013. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So... As a result of the research and the coincidences, so to speak, mm -hmm. that I have encountered, it almost 
<laughs> makes me sometimes think that Oh, Diamond Field Jack may have been there helping. <laughs> yeah, you were like destined to <laughs> uncover this Fine. story. Yeah. And one of those coincidences, <laughs> as I mentioned when I first read the information about it, mm-hmm. it sounded somewhat familiar. And as I researched further, I discovered that Diamond Field Jack had developed a mine seven miles from my father's mine. Oh, my god! Back in the late 40s. And my dad had uh, mining property and and spent uh, the good part of his life out in the hills west of Delta and near the Nevada border, where Diamond Field Jack at the time had gone to a place in uh, western Utah called Gold Hill. At the time, it was developed, you know, gold mining and, and whatever, and he had become interested in it somehow. I We don't know all the details of that, but I have been able to find some research on some people that knew him yeah. while he was there. But this mine that uh, he had was within seven miles of my dad's. Mm-hmm. Now, knowing my dad, my dad lived out in those hills, and if there's anybody out there to be known, my dad would get to know him, <laughs> yeah. I am sure. Yeah. And so I'm thinking that uh, my dad met him, talked to him, and knew the story and repeated it when I was a 10, 12-year-old yeah. kid. Jeez. And and that uh, somewhat stuck with me. But then one of the other coincidences, and this doesn't have really anything to do with it other than the the fact that it was a real coincidence. I was 13 years old, and uh, we had gone to Santa Monica, California, to visit my sister living in Southern California for Christmas. This was in 1948 and 1949. Well, the uh, Rose Parade was on January 1st, and we stayed down there and watch that and then the morning of January 2nd we left and drove back to where we were from Delta Utah well on that particular day Diamond Field Jack or Jack Davis had been ran over by a taxi on the 28th of December Mm -hmm. and then died right in that period of time Mm -hmm. But he was buried in the uh, cemetery in Las Vegas, mm-hmm. right along the highway, and we drove past it. <laughs> so you got um, a glimpse of the funeral well, happening. <laughs> I don't have any recollection right, of, yeah. of that happening, but just the fact that we drove past there that day, yeah. the day it happened. And wow. I've been back to the site and... and uh, the highway is still there. Everything's still the same. Mm-hmm. If you'd have looked, you'd have been able to see right where he was, right. was buried. Yeah. So uh, that uh, is just one of those curious things that uh, you know you you remember. Definitely. And um, but anyway, as I started to uh, research this and wanted to find out where did this incident happen, the first clue was over at the library, and a newspaper article written by a historian from Twin Falls area 
1936, he had written a newspaper article in The Statesman. Mm-hmm. And in it, he was describing the, uh, the incident. And he made mention in there that this happened south of Twin Falls, mm-hmm. approximately 1,000 feet west of the Magic Hot Springs Road which still exists. Oh, and it says that the area is marked by a loosely stacked rock monument. Yeah. Well, so I go back to that area, and uh, one of the individuals that live in that area is Alex Kunkel. He's on the board of directors of the Twin Falls County Museum. And I contacted him with the information that we had there, we went out searching in that area mm-hmm. for it, but we never could find anything. Because there were even people down there that had ideas, as we found out, of where it happened. And they would tell us, and we'd go there, and, and never could find anything that was west of the Hot Springs Road, nor any kind of a rock monument yeah. type thing. The information that they had at the Idaho Historical Society was not the trial papers okay. of the Cache County. They were the legal papers of James Hawley. Gotcha. Yeah, defense attorney. The defense attorney. Yeah, yeah. And so they were under his name and not Diamond Field Jack. Oh. But that's this young girl had somehow uh, looked in this box and and had uh, been curious and and determined that it involved Jack. And it was all of his legal papers of his defense uh-huh. of Jack Davis. That's great. And it, uh, it takes literally hours and hours to reread and to try to follow the sequence. Mm-hmm. The papers wow. were not necessarily in sequential order. And so I just study and read, and, and uh, one day I read about uh, a testimony of a surveyor that had uh, been hired by Hawley to go down to the area, the general site where this happened, is that the Sparks Herald Cattle Company mm-hmm. operated approximately a hundred mile square, which ran from the border of Utah into almost to Winnemuc, Nevada, mm-hmm. up into Idaho, the Wahis, over to Twin Falls and back down along the Utah border. And was this like a legally plotted out, or was this just open land that they kind of... Well, when they went there, it was open land mm-hmm. in 1871, a person by the name... Harold, he had a nickname called Barley Harold, but that wasn't his name. Uh, it was a habit that he had. He always carried a sack of uh, barley or oats on his saddle to feed his horse. Oh. And they referred to him. Anyway, the attorney who was Senator William Bora, which was at the time a young, inspiring attorney in in Idaho. Mm -hmm. This helped make his name in Idaho, this trial. Mm -hmm. The testimony and the witnesses that uh, 
that Bora had brought into the trial when they were trying Diamond Field Jack, they mentioned five different locations that were five different working ranches of the Sparks Herald Mm -hmm. operation. He had 25 working ranches in this 100 miles. And so they hired McClellan, was his name, a surveyor, to go down and, and measure the distances between what was called the Boar's Nest, the San Sico Ranch, the Brown Ranch, the Circle, or the uh, Point of the Mountain Ranch, up to the site of the killing. Yeah. And he had these measurements in the testimony. Oh, wow. So it kind of coordinated it, it out for you. So yeah. we, I got a, an engineer named wow. David Curtis, and uh, we read through them, and, and we went down to these ranches and uh, triangulated. Wow. And uh, by using the miles from these different branches, and he said that they were from the ranch house of these five different ranches, and luckily, four of them still exist. The ranch house still exists. We went down to these five locations, took readings uh, with his GPS, and then we went back up to the general area. Wow. And it took us three hours of triangulating, Jeez. going from one spot, and and we finally came to a spot. And uh, Dave said, "This is where the wagon set." Wow! Oh my God! And uh, and so I said, yeah. "Okay, well, there's one more measurement then we've got <laughs> to do." Now there wasn't any loosely stacked monument around, mm-hmm. but over, well about 300 feet from it was. And what it was, it wasn't a monument per se, but in those days, they would go in and take a small spring Mm -hmm. and they would develop it. And so they would dig down 20, 30 feet, take all of the rocks out of it, make it a pool, Uh and these rocks were just stacked around it. And so it looked like a a deliberate stacking of rocks. We... uh, Went back out to the Magic Hot Springs Road, uh-huh. and uh, the first, you know, description of where he said it was approximately a thousand feet west of the Magic Hot Springs Road. We went out there in the middle of the road, took a reading, walked back to the site that we said was it, and it was a thousand thirty-eight feet. Oh my gosh! Okay. And uh, <laughs> and then this loosely stacked rock was about 300 feet away from it, but you could see it from there. Uh. So with that, the other uh, thing that was of real interest when we we got out there, after kind of making a little marker there, we wanted to come back the next week with metal detectors, Alex Kunkel and I. And while I was back home, I remembered in the testimony of the owner of the wagon that these two young men were killed in, they testified at the trial that there were six shots fired, three of them into the bodies of the men, mm-hmm. and uh, 
one of them up through the top of the wagon, one down through the tongue of the wagon that settled into an oil can, a mm -hmm. coal oil can. Yeah. And that sixth one out about two rods out north of the wagon through the side of a saddle. They were asked, well, this bullet, or what do you think was a bullet hole? What made you think it was a bullet hole? And they said, well, it was the collective conclusion of all of us, the sheriff and whatever. There's, the leather was pushed in mm -hmm. on the front side and pushed out on the outside. Yeah. So it was concluded yeah. that it was a bullet that had gone through it. And they said, well, did you look in the ground under it? And they said, no, we didn't think of that. And when I read that a year or so earlier, I had written in the column, so the bullet is still there. Yeah. <laughs> and so I went back, found that information, and uh, metal detectors the next week we went out, and Alex and I, starting out around the campsite, we found some old metal cans, and on one side... We filled a wagon set here on mm. facing the north, and, uh, and these two, the cans were just outside what we think would have been the door mm. on the uh, uh, the left side of the door, and and then we found some bolts and a uh, a couple of uh, wagon parts uh -huh. on the other side where wow. apparently they had, you know, worked on something, and so then. I said, okay, I'm going to go out there about two rods, which is approximately 32 feet, with my metal detector and look for that bullet. Yeah. So I went out there, and uh, it said that it had been stretched over a, a sagebrush. And I get out there, and I start looking around and looked over a little bit to my right, and there was a sagebrush yeah. growing up in the middle of what is called a lava flow. Uh -huh. And there are those broken rocks, but a, a, uh, what was a stream of lava, and then dried and cracked and broke. And, but anyway, uh, a sagebrush was growing up out of there. And my thought at the time was, well, that could have been a great-great-granddaughter <laughs> of the original sagebrush. From the 1890s. The 1890s. Yeah, wow. And so I walked around to the other side of it, where the saddle would have been stretched over. Mm -hmm. I put my metal detector down, and boom, it just sounded right. Wow. And I got Man. down on my knee, started to scraping the dirt away, and about two inches under the ground, laying on a rock, was that bullet. Jeez. And the coincidence so of that, uh, we, uh, we've taken it to bullet experts, ballistic experts, and they conclude that, yes, it was a forty-four caliber bullet made prior to 1900. Yeah. And, uh, and there's a, uh, a difference in bullets pre-1900 uh, and post. Mm -hmm. And it's the composition of the, the bullet. Yeah. And uh, this was strictly the uh, the bullets of the pre yeah. pre uh, 1900. So we ha can conclude, not absolutely, but yeah. it's pretty evident That's that amazing. that was the bullet. Yeah. Another uh, discovery 
that uh, one of those coincidences that you can't explain. I had a friend that lived here in Boise. He was a machinist, and he did work for me periodically. And I took a metal, a piece of metal over to him to have him cut it off to fit on a particular saw that I had bought. And uh, he cut it off for me, and, and it's at his home. Uh, we sat down there on the back porch afterwards, and, and he asked me, he says, how's your story coming? Because I had talked to him about it. And, <laughs> yeah. and I says, whoa, it's fine. I'm getting ready to publish it. And I said, did I ever tell you that I found one of the bullets? And he said, no. So I told him the story of, of finding this bullet, and he... Even to this day, he says that as I was telling him about this story, he said, the hair on the back of my neck, I know, raised. <laughs> yeah. And the next thing I, he said to me, he says, Max, I have that gun. And I says, what would make you think you have that gun? And he says, well, tell me again where it happened. And I told him, and he said, I have a friend that had recently passed away here a year or so ago, and his mother uh, brought this gun to me and said, we don't know what it is, why, we just know that he found it down there near uh, Rogerson, and, but we don't know anything about it, but since you collect guns, we want to give it to you, being a friend. It was a forty-four caliber Model 1878 Colt, 44 caliber gun. Yeah. We looked up the uh, history on it, and it was a uh, built, designed specifically for an under-the-shoulder holster gun. Yeah. Well, as the story evolves, and the two individuals that ultimately confessed to killing the two sheep herders, he testified that he owned a Model 78 44 caliber under the shoulder holster gun that he was used at the time this yeah. all happened and that the uh, sheep herder, the young sheep herder had wrestled him to the floor and, and he was trying to get this gun out mm -hmm. to protect himself and the young man took it away from him and obviously shot it a couple of times. One of them down through the tongue and the one out through the, the saddle. And so he testified that he had lost the gun. Yeah. Well, in reality, we all believe that he threw the gun away mm -hmm. as, after the incident happened. And one of the curious things about it, it's all rusted, but it's covered with minerals, yeah. which indicates that it was thrown into water yeah. and, uh, and set there. And so... It was just right near where the incident happened, and it's right near where Dick said he found it. Again, there was only 2,100 of these guns made over a 25-year period, mm -hmm. shipped all over the United States. The likelihood of that being a gun, again, is very high. Right, yeah. That I remember reading that and just... Like pulling my hair out, going, "Oh my gosh, Max, are you kidding me? This yeah. is crazy! All these yeah, coincidences." Yeah, it's just—it's the coincidences <laughs> are just uh, insane. Yeah. So, with those curious facts, the story, you know, just takes on a 
a whole different meaning and, and uh, interest. Uh-huh. And then above the story of, of those facts, the story of Jack Davis himself yeah. is a, uh, uh, a real curiosity. Jack Davis, we do not know that that was his name. Right. We've yeah. never been able to do any tracking down except just this morning I looked on my internet and there is a note from a lady in Los Angeles that has been working with me uh, for four or five years and she told me she's introducing me to a genealogist in Phoenix, Arizona that she feels will be able to track down oh. Diamond Field Jack. Yeah. Oh my with gosh. With the evidence that we've got. Yeah. That uh, and she is a professional at it. So maybe we'll be able to <sighs> really find out yeah. what his name was, where he is from and whatever. I can only imagine I spent hours, hours and hours looking up all of his different aliases, John and Frank Woodson. Yeah. And, you know, I found all these individuals with those names from West Virginia and from New Jersey and right. some that were in California and but none it, of them it none of them quite it just doesn't see in, up, when he was yeah. in uh, prison in uh, uh, Yuma Arizona yeah. he said he was from Wheeling uh, West Virginia right and uh, and then oh, uh, he yeah. told his uh, his sheriff the sheriff in while he was in jail in Albion his daughter, who used to bring him his meals, that he was born in the same state in the same county that Jefferson Davis was born in. Right. Yeah. So West he Virginia. was yeah. known to be, uh, you know, an exaggerator and exaggerated on all kinds of things. But the story of of uh, Jack Davis, our first knowledge of him was in Silver City, Idaho. Mm-hmm. If you know where that is. Yeah. And uh, and then. In 1892, there was a diamond rush Mm -hmm. out in Owyhee County, and they had a great furor about diamonds, in which they were not diamonds, they were silicone crystals. But nonetheless, it aroused the countryside. A lot of them were sold as diamonds, Mm -hmm. and Jack Davis came down to that area and found some of those same crystals and carried them with him and claimed that they were diamonds. And that's how he picked up the name Diamond Field Jack. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Which went with him to his dying Dying day. day. Yeah, yeah, in his obituary. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So anyway, uh, Jack Davis shows up working for the Sparks Herald Cattle Company Mm -hmm. at the time that the sheep herders were moving into Oakley, Idaho, and they were starting to move their sheep westward Mm -hmm. into what Sparks Herald considered their prime grazing lands. And so we developed the classic cattleman-sheep herder conflict and war. And uh, as that developed... Sparks hired Jack Davis to be a range rider in that area, attempting to keep the sheep herders from coming onto their land. Well, in the process of this, 
Jack Davis, his method was to ride into a camp, and generally they were younger sheep herders mm-hmm. hired by the sheep owners, and uh, he would sit down and even have dinner with them, lunch, but then he would leave a threat, and he one like, uh, are you working for William Tolman? And they'd say, no. And they said, well, it's a good thing, because if you were, I'd have to uh, run you off this property, and, and there may be gunfire, and he'd try to scare them. Uh-huh. Well, William Tolman heard these stories, and he, in return, he was a large man and somewhat of a blowhard himself. <laughs> and so bragging to some of these younger sheep herders, he said, well, if this guy wants to confront me, yeah, I'll go yeah. down and confront him. And so uh, he had these three or four young sheep herders sitting on a ridge looking down at the cabin where Jack Davis was staying. Uh-huh. And he rode down and approached uh, the cabin, and Jack Davis came out, and Tolman said, understand you're, you know, threatening me or whatever. And as the conversation goes, Tolman was sitting on his horse with his rifle. Now, this is the story that has developed. Uh Davis tells that story, and, and the younger men have later verified it. But anyway, he's with his gun over his saddle horn. And so anyway, he gets in this little bit of a conversation with Jack Davis, and he said uh, he made a move to get down off from his horse, and in doing so, swung his rifle around, which startled Jack Davis. Right. And he quickly pulled the gun (laughs) and shot him in the shoulder. Mm -hmm. Well, when uh, he cut down off his horse, of course, he's not in a condition to do anything about it. So then he starts to plead for his life. And uh, Davis put him back on his horse, took him back up to these young sheep herders and told them to take him to a doctor. Uh He needed medical assistance, which they did. Well, but then Tolman's story of it, of course, was that Jack Davis just shot him. And and so... uh, Left him out. All day to, right. in the sun, and he was discovered half dead. And yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah just like <laughs> so. Uh, so anyway, a warrant is issued for Jack Davis, and so Jack leaves Southern Idaho and and heads for Nevada. Mm. Works down there for only until uh, January, when apparently these young men. Then the story got out, and the mm-hmm. sheriff heard the true story, and so. They just dropped the, the warrant for his address. So Jack Davis heard about it, and so then he starts to work his way back up into Idaho. And on his way back up, he visited a couple of these ranches. Yeah. The night before this all happened, he claims him and uh, a partner were out looking for horses, mm-hmm. which was a practice at the time. The ranchers down there didn't have, at the time, a lot of hay fields and a lot of winter feed. So they'd take their horses during the winter time and turn them loose onto the range so that the horses could forage for themselves. And then during the early spring, 
they would have these individuals that these people would go out and round up those all these horses uh-huh. and the horses would be branded and, and then bring them back and and be paid to retrieve the horses yeah. well they were getting back to the brown ranch late at night yeah. and as they came over this ridge down over the hill was a sheep camp mm-hmm. and they could see a lamp and perhaps a fire or whatever so they just shot down into the camp not necessarily with any intent to kill anybody but just to scare them or or whatever but in the process it hit a horse and killed one of the horses and so these boys got out of their wagon of course and hid and and fired back they could see where the shots were coming from and and then jack davis and uh, uh, his partner went on down that night to the Brown Ranch. The next morning, they got up at uh, daylight, and and this is where it's kind of an interesting scenario. In the uh, retracing the events where these two sheep herders were killed, it was about 16 miles from the Brown Ranch up to the site where these kids were killed. Yeah. And uh, down at the point of the ranch, it, it was six miles and 21 miles and whatever and and that's how we triangulated it but he was known to be at the brown ranch at sunlight and there was reference in the trial at sunrise Mm -hmm. and uh other at breakfast well when you go down to the brown ranch sunrise could happen at 10 Uh o'clock Because it was right behind a boulder, (laughs) a large boulder. I mean, almost a mountain-sized boulder. So if they left at sunrise, it would have been 10 o'clock. But then they were known to be at the boar's nest at 12 Mm o'clock. So at daylight, it could have been 6 like it is now, you know, 6.30, 7.30. But they would have had to have ridden their horses 16 miles, kill the two sheep herders, and then 21 miles back there by noon, which was really an impossibility. Yeah. But Bora was able to convince the jury that it was possible yeah. that they could have done it. And the jury went upon that notion that it was possible. But Jack Davis had developed a reputation. In fact, one of, to just illustrate what the reputation was, one of the jurors on the jury that convicted him afterwards made a comment to a man by the name of Fuller. He said, it didn't matter whether Jack Davis was guilty or not, he was a bad enough guy that he should be hung on general principles. Right, yeah. <laughs> and so that type of prejudice permeated the, you know, the area, yeah. the jurors and, and whatever else. Yeah, in the, in the podcast episode, I read a lot of the newspaper articles describing Jack and just, he's such a villain yeah. in all of these. And so, of course, everybody's going to think that. He and was yet, guilty before uh, he even walked in. Everybody that <laughs> knew him personally yeah had a totally different opinion of him yeah that knew him personally and while he was in prison 
the neighbors, everybody, bring him gifts. And yeah. Because uh, he did things for people. He's making little dolls, dolls. like hair dolls and right. things. And, yeah. and even after he was pardoned, he went to uh, Tonopah, Nevada, became a multimillionaire, mm-hmm. and became an icon of the state of Nevada. Right. Uh, known all over the United States as just this interesting icon yeah. of the West. The fact that a governor from another state would come on his behalf and right. like defend him. I haven't come across that in the six years I've been studying inmates at this site. Yeah. I haven't come across that any other and time. And then so. a, a former Supreme Court justice yeah. in Utah, right. Powers, he came yeah. forth. And uh, <laughs> and said that he was totally convinced and mm. gave him money to get to him go to, to yeah. Sparks, Nevada. Yeah. So the uh, the story, you know, even the statesman, in one later article, and while he was in Goldfield, Nevada, he had interest in a mine in Butte, Montana. Uh-huh. And so he's up there looking into these uh, interests. And while he was there, three men came up to the side of him as a result of something that had happened in Goldfield some years ago where Diamond Field had witnessed a killing by two uh, union officers, testified, and they were convicted and Mm -hmm. sent to prison. As a result of that, the union put a $200 cash prize on anybody that would kill Jack Davis. <laughs> so these three men up in Butte, Montana, they approach him and, and they, in essence, tell him that, that he's a dead man. And, uh, and he was able to turn on them and take a knife out of his own, he had it in his boot, take the knife out, and he stabbed one of the the intruders. Uh-huh. And then one of them had a twenty-five caliber pistol, and they shot Jack Davis in the jaw. Yeah. And uh, Davis left the uh, auto dealer where he was at, went over to his hotel to get a gun, and announced to the people that he had to go take care of a situation. And they had blood all over him, and of course they took him to the hospital. And he wasn't able to uh, go get uh, the other guys. But the article said that they removed the bullet from his jaw with a pair of pliers. (laughs) And and it's all building up this character, of course, of Jack Davis. Yeah, I like that he kind of gets up and he's like, somebody give me a gun, I'm going to track him down. They're like, calm down, we're taking you to the hospital. (laughs) You need a doctor more than you need a gun. So so anyway, Jack Davis... uh, you know, goes to Goldfield, becomes a multimillionaire. One other occasion that uh, they had the world heavyweight champion boxing match in Goldfield in uh, 1909, I think. And anyway, it brought in reporters from all over the United States. The next morning, the union had 
gone and they had struck the mine owners and they had taken the newspaper and all of that picket in front of the stores and whatever and try to keep people from patronizing yeah. uh, anything to do with the miners. Well, they had taken the newspapers away from these two boys. Uh-huh. And so the, the Butch, or uh, Butch, <laughs> Butch Cassidy. I'm Is that your next, <laughs> your next book? <laughs> anyway, uh, the mine owners, they get tired of the strike, so they go and, and uh, they sell the newspapers on the street and they clear the union people out. And so the n- two boys come back and start, and they, well, this n- next morning after the prize fight, the two boys are out selling their newspapers. And half a dozen union guys took their papers away from again and chased them down the street and these kids ran down the, the street up into Jack Davis's office and uh, and the story goes that Jack Davis comes out onto the porch and these union guys are all out there in front of him and he said uh, he, with two revolvers he said I'm in a count to 23 and if there's anybody left in the street you'll get shot said, by the time he got to three, the streets were cleared. <laughs> I love and, that. Yeah. And so that story by one of the newspaper articles appears in the, uh, the New York Saturday Evening Post yeah. as, a, as an article. That's amazing. So he just becomes an icon of, yeah. of the West. And, and as you read more about him, the statesman, the thing that interests me about this story is the legal aspects of it. Yeah. The way the whole thing was, was conducted with Bora, the prosecuting attorney, and James Hawley, mm-hmm. the defense attorney, two well-known and obviously very capable attorneys going against each other. Well, with the condition that existed in Albion at the time, you had the first, the sheepmen, cattlemen mm-hmm. against each other. You had in that area the Mormons and the non-Mormon controversy. Yeah. You had community against community. (laughs) You had the Republicans against the Democrats, and they were, at the time, very aggressively opposing Mm -hmm. and uh, arguing and and fighting. And so in the midst of this, prejudice and and all of these other things that was going on, they had a trial of a man that was so bad that he should be hung on general principles. <laughs> Everybody can unite behind it's, that, right? right. <laughs> and so he, uh, his, even his, the jurors, later on, a lot of them admitted that, you know, it, it, he was just guilty, there was no yeah. question about it. Well, so then Hawley, at the expense of, of John Sparks, mm-hmm. 
equivalent today of over a million dollars to defend this man that wasn't worthy to live. Right, yeah. <laughs> Holly takes this case to the district court, mm. the Idaho Supreme Court, yeah. the federal district courts, federal appeal courts, the United States Supreme Court, back to the Idaho Supreme Court. Well, one of the interesting things is he was going to the Supreme Courts. The one thing that the United Supreme Court, I didn't realize this until I got into this, the Supreme Court, they do not hear on the basis of whether the man is guilty or not guilty. Mm-hmm. It's on the basis of was it a fair trial and correctly and properly conducted. Yeah. And it was, according to the reports that get to yeah. Supreme Court. Okay, so then before the, the Idaho Supreme Court, and this is after two other men come forth and confess that they killed. Right. The two sheep herders. Yeah. As the newspaper reported it after they appeared before the Board of Pardons uh, and can, made this confession, the uh, statesman reports, and oh, and this is the other interesting thing the statesman was a Republican paper, mm-hmm. and the Capitol News was a Democrat yeah. paper, yeah. and they were at each other. On everything. <laughs> on everything. <laughs> but this in particular, but, yeah. So the morning after they re- have these two confessed uh, individuals, the statesman reports that it happened, but they said that the Board of Pardons felt like that the leg of justice was being pulled. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. And, uh, and that uh, they were confessing this uh, killing to try to protect Diamond Field Jack. Yeah, yeah. It was just another ruse. These two were just chills, and then they would get off on on self-defense. Okay, so then they tried Jeff Gray and found him innocent Mm -hmm. based on self-defense. Okay, now after this... They wrote up a report that they did not believe that Jack Davis shot or killed these two men. Yeah. That Gray did it in Mm self-defense. Okay, so then with this, two other men has confessed, and Jack Davis, nothing's happened. He's still convicted of, of murder. Right. Hawley goes to the Supreme Court and in his argument says, as a result of this hearing and this conclusion, if A murders B and A is convicted and sentenced to hang and a year later B, who supposedly was murdered, shows up in the court that there isn't anything you can to, yeah. I mean, A is still convicted of murder. Right. So the response was that, uh, I mean, it is basically true that if they're convicted of murder, 
they can't erase that. Yeah. And the Supreme Court said that our remedy to that situation is the Board of Pardons. Mm -hmm. They can pardon that person. So the Board of Pardons, they then sat down and changed the, the sentence of death to life in prison. And yet they didn't believe that he even killed him. Right. I mean, it, it, it's, uh, uh, it's beyond your imagination as to mm-hmm. what was going on and this prejudice and this infighting, the the governor, the uh, secretary of state, and the lieutenant governor were all Republicans. Yeah. And it was, a, again, a Republican. Bora apparently had tremendous power over the governor and, and the others. Well, it wasn't until Governor Hunt, who was a Democrat, was elected and a, uh, another Democrat, I think Secretary of State, mm-hmm. uh, that they ultimately pardoned yeah. Jack Davis. And this man was unjustly convicted all that period of time, set in prison. And, you know, there's an interesting law going on right now in our uh, legislature about compensating yeah. uh, wrongfully convicted, wrongly convicted was, yeah. people, it's, which didn't exist at the time. Right. But, Anyway, the statesman made an observation in one of their newspaper articles that the Jack Davis trial was perhaps the greatest trial in the history of Idaho, if not in the entire West. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> but uh, it really is a fascinating story, and, and as you dig into it, you know, more and more of the details, they're just continual uh, new interesting reading your book i i i could feel just that love of research that i get too when i dig into these inmate stories and like ah it's amazing (laughs) that you dedicated so much time and work and effort into uncovering this story so well and it's interesting it's just right on the surface yeah today right i mean i get an email today and i'll contact this lady and yeah she'll probably i'll make a trip there or she'll make a trip here and she'll look over all the evidence that i've got and yeah we might have to do a follow-up when you find out what maybe what yeah, it would just be start. fun to find out where he came from yeah and who he oh was and he makes a statement that his father was uh, the leader of the uh, the black brigade during the civil war and uh, and there was a black but it wasn't a davis that was in charge of it so we're gonna track this down. Oh, yeah. it, well, <laughs> it's you know, there, it, it's yeah. amazing how things happen. Yeah. Uh, how uh, the right person with the right. There's one one bit of information that I haven't tracked down yet, and it could lead to uh, a real possibility. When he first came into the area, he was down in the early area. And this was before he went to work for Sparks Herald. Mm-hmm. And he went to apply for a job from a man by the name of Shooty. And as the story goes, and Davis, I think, is the one that tells the story, Shooty, it's also kind of collaborated. Davis says that he went in and applied. And when he talked to Shooty, he uh, 
told him, you know, about himself and, and whatever, and he said, Shooty went into the house, came back out with a rifle, and ordered him off the premise. And in uh, the conversation, something to the effect, you must know my parents, and that was the reason that he was scaring him off. Oh. Well, so what I need to do, and this is one of the things that we'll research out. Yeah. Let's find out where Shooty came from. Yeah. And uh, who some of his parents were, or what, you know, maybe some historical fact of something going on then yeah. in that area where he is from, that the name make him up. So, you know, we we just, uh, I, I just, I have his name right on the side of my computer, <laughs> and it's one of the things that I've been kind of holding out as the Maybe the ace. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, we'll have to have a part two with you in the maybe next season and Hopefully. find out what you came up with. Because I've spent hours trying to track him down myself just through ancestry and other things. And it. if he's connected with Civil War, is like, I've never, I haven't heard that. So that's something oh, that... Well, the lady that gave that testimony yeah. was the daughter of the sheriff at the time, and she said that the two of them tracked down that the sheriff and him were both born in the same area where Jefferson Davis was. That's so wild. And yet, huh. uh, he was born in Wheeling in New Jersey. And, right, and, yeah. And so you, you don't know where, where the truth lies. Yeah, such a fascinating story. Well, thank you so much, Max, for coming in and being here writing this book i recommend everybody come to the old pen check out diamond field finding the real jack davis by max black it's a fantastic read if you're into history if you're into research max goes full depth into all these amazing things that he he talked about today so definitely pick that up thank you so much for being on today thank you for inviting me take care do your own time do your own number stay healthy stay indoors let's get through this together If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe so others can find our podcast. If you're interested in more Old Idaho Penitentiary information and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in this episode, follow the Old Idaho Penitentiary on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to learn more about the Idaho State Historical Society and its other sites, follow ID State Historical Society on Instagram or visit history.idaho.gov. If you have a question or comment for the hosts, please email us at behindgraywalls at gmail.com.